You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan, I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Analyzing video games is a key part of being a video game scholar. It is kind of the bread and butter of the work that we do. And it is not as simple as it may seem because you have to do a bit more than just playing a video game and write down your thoughts on it. Especially if you want to do this systematically and you want to publish the thoughts that you develop in conversation with the game that you are playing. Now, today we're going to go deeply into the methodological aspects of analyzing video games. We're going to talk about close playing, which is a particular method that is quite common in the domain of qualitative video game analysis. In order to do so, we have a guest. We're going to talk to Theresa Tannenbaum in just a second. But before we do that, I want to briefly remind you that if you like this show and you want to help us make it happen, then you can support us by joining Studying Pixels Plus. There you can get all of our episodes entirely ad-free. You'll get a lovely sticker and monthly plus episodes. Some of these plus episodes go into academic subjects. They are for scholars and students. And others go deep into video game culture and video game discourse. They're very enjoyable, if I may say so myself. If you're curious about that, you can go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Analyzing video games can be quite a challenge. Video games are often huge and take a lot more time to get through than it does for a film, for example. Uh, they also shift and change as you play them. You might not be able to get all of the text that is present just by playing through a sequence once. And then there are all kinds of further challenges, like how do you take notes? How do you acquire the material to include screenshots in your publications, for example. These are all aspects that we are going to discuss today in conversation with Teresa Tess Tannenbaum. 
She's an assistant professor in the Department of Informatics at the Donald Bren School of Information and Computer Sciences at the University of Irvine, California. And together with Professor Jim Bitsochi, she published an essay in 2011. And that essay is still tremendously influential. It is called Well Read, Applying Close Reading Techniques to Gameplay Experiences. To talk about exactly how to do that, she joins us now. I'm happy to have you here. Hi, Tess. Hi, Stefan. So I want to start off with the broadest possible question that one could ask in the context of such a conversation, and that is, what is close playing? How would you define this method? It is a method for making sense of a game's poetics and the underlying aesthetic and, and design elements of a game through the perspective of a, a particular scholar. It's a subjective method for making sense of, of the experiences we have when we play games. But making sense of the experience when I play games, isn't that what I do in the process of playing anyway? Like, how is it different from just, in quotation marks, playing a game? It's So it takes the... So in some ways, I think just playing a game, to, to use the air quotes, yeah. is the first step in close playing. Um, you, you, I, it's, I think, ultimately anyone pursuing a, a close playing of a game needs to have that first authentic, genuine, unfiltered, immediate experience of play. Uh, what close playing does is it then repeats that process uh, with more rigor and, and more focused attention and and more in more theoretical and focused attention than than one would engage in simply through play. Uh, it's a way of situating your own perspective and zeroing in on a phenomenon within the game that you're interested in in order to unpack it and and in some play, in some cases uh reverse engineer the ways in which the game has worked its magic on you but you just mentioned this unfiltered first impression right of approaching a game and i'm wondering is this something like uh, is it okay if I have a particular research question and approach a game directly with that? Or of which value is it that I basically play a game for my own personal enjoyment before I analytically dissect it, basically? So I, I advocate for us as scholars uh, to always try to suspend our, our critical faculties the first time we encounter a game. And... And I recognize that the, the, the key word here is to try to do that because in many ways it's very hard to turn off the part of your brain that is trained to, to think critically and analytically. But I feel that it's important when doing any kind of close reading or analysis to leave space for yourself to first have the joy and to first have an experience that is comparable or analogous to an experience that a non-critical reader or player would have in the game because the game isn't designed to be analyzed by by the developer and the designer it's designed to be played and i feel like i don't i think it's hard to produce an analysis of a artifact that's designed for play if you haven't had that play yourself 
Yeah, the status of play here, I think, is really important, right? Because play is, at least if we look into the the common definitions within game studies, it's a voluntary activity, it's an activity that does not uh, produce any direct gains, and even like an, an analytical thought might already be some kind of gain. So if you say, like, I'm going to play this to analyze it, you're already in a different mindset compared to I'm going to play it to play it. I actually, so when I was doing these kinds of, of critical readings of games, and it's something that I, I had to step away from because I, I had carpal tunnel syndrome that I'm only just now getting surgery for. And, and, and so I'm finally able to play again after, after years of not being able I'm to. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, but it, thank you. It's, it's better. It's getting better. It is lovely being able to play again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when, when I was playing, I often, so so I, I think it was really important to maintain an active play hobby, practice that is not agenda-driven. Uh, I the, the games that I choose to close read and the games that I analyzed were all games that I had encountered because I was drawn to them as a player first and, and not as a scholar. I very seldom would go and seek out a game specifically to analyze it because somebody had told me to. It was always that through the course of playing, I would sort of have that part of my brain that said, oh, I'm, I'm going to come back to this at a certain point. And, and that, I think, again, helps preserve some, albeit imperfect, aspect of that authentic initial experience. It's probably also important that we take such things like player preference into account then because you mentioned oh, yeah. that the games that you analyzed are usually the ones that you felt drawn to and inevitably i had to think of like how it would be for me if i had to analyze a video game that is part of a genre for example that i have absolutely no attachment to and i think i would sincerely struggle of course i could probably do something but I would really struggle to put myself into the shoes of someone who actually enjoys this. Yes. And, and I think part of, what, part of what I love about hermeneutic methods in, in close reading is that the subjectivity of the reader is centered. We don't pretend that we're reading objectively. We don't pretend that we're reading without our own perspectives and agendas and biases. And so... I, I mean, the the strength of a hermeneutic argument rests on any sort of claims to expertise in the analysis of the reader, and that is at least partially situated in their own perspective. If I'm going to write about a story-based game, it's going to be because I've already sort of found some joy in that game, found play in that game. I'm not like I if if somebody wanted me to write a an analysis of a genre, like a sports game where I don't I don't play sports games typically. Uh, I'm not the person to write that analysis. I'm I'm not the right close reader for that genre. And but I am the right close reader for a very particular niche of of, of story driven games. And so I I stay in my lane, as it were. I actually had such an experience when I started out in video game journalism. I was so happy that I was picked up by a website that would uh, give me a small amount of money for my writing. However, they were an esports website. Oh. And I, I, then, I then realized, wait, I actually have uh, not only no 
clue about esports, but also not a particularly a particular interest about it. And it was right. like it made it into really hard work. But what I actually wanted to ask is, you just mentioned hermeneutics and the hermeneutic mm-hmm. argument. What is the hermeneutic argument? So close reading itself is a form of hermeneutic method. Um, it was pioneered originally by by John Crow Ransom and the New Critics, um, which was a literary movement that arose in response to a, a literary movement that was focused on trying to unpack what an author was thinking. And the New Critics worked really hard to discard any assumptions about the author's state of mind and instead tried to redirect critical analysis to texts and to the the things that the text was doing. Uh, but but that type of method is a form of hermeneutic analysis. And hermeneutic analysis has its roots in in religious uh, theory and philosophy. Uh, as I'm, I'm Jewish, and so the example I typically go to is the Talmud, which is the writings of rabbis who are interpreting the Torah. And that process of reading the text and interpreting it and making meaning and situating that meaning in their own lived experiences uh, was the basis for early hermeneutic uh, methods and analysis. Um, That's known as theological hermeneutics. It was then developed into the interpretation of law, and we get juridical hermeneutics. Uh, We look at, we think about uh, the U.S. Supreme Court issues opinions uh, on law. And that's because it recognizes that it is interpreting a text based on its current situation in history, its current moment in society. Uh, from theological and juridical hermeneutics, uh, we had Hans-Jörg Gadamer, who was a philosopher who pioneered philosophical hermeneutics, which was an approach to interpreting any text or textual phenomenon through this lens of subjective reading and rereading. And, and Gadamer talked about something known as the, the fusing of horizons, where you have the horizon of the text, the thing that the text is doing, and you have the perspective of the reader. And the goal is to read that text iteratively until you feel like your understanding and the understandings and meanings contained within the text have aligned and you can start to speak with some uh, authority about what that text is doing. And so close reading as a process is is just like a sort of easier to access form of, of hermeneutic analysis where you throw away a bunch of the jargon uh, and we're left with with something that's actually, when you take away a big word like hermeneutics, has a lot of really useful, practical, pragmatic ways of approaching any text and trying to extract meaning from it. Mm, so basically, if I uh, apply this to close playing, then it would mean we leave the authorial intent entirely aside. We don't so much think about what is the what are the developers trying to tell us, but instead I take a video game or a video game sequence and I play it over and over again and I sharpen my understanding of it each time I do so. Yes, although I will say that uh, the new critics desire to discard the author. They they went too far. Like they they had a. I'm trying to remember the name of this paper. I'm not going to summon it off the top of my head. But uh, they they wrote a, an article where they argued that you needed to throw away authorial intent and and focus solely on the text. 
And then there was a sequel to that, which was to throw away your own emotional response and focus solely oh. on the text. And it, 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 goes, it gets to a point where there actually is no meaning to be made and, and the act of reading gets eliminated and, and it, it, it actually stops being possible to do the thing that they advocated for. And, and ultimately their approach wasn't successful. Uh, I tend to take a fairly context inclusive approach to close reading because I, I see all of that as a salient that like the moment in which I read a game matters because who I am in that moment affects what I'm going to see and the kinds of observations I'm going to make. The knowledge that I bring to the game from either previous play sessions or from things that I have read in theory or from my knowledge of the developers changes the way in which I'm going to interpret a game. And there was this thing that happened in as as Gadamer's hermeneutics was being developed, where um, Edmund Husserl, a well-known German philosopher, uh, I, I think German, quote me on this, um, but uh, had this notion of phenomenological reduction, uh, and and he had this idea that you could essentially try to eliminate as much of your own subjectivity as possible during a reading and be left with something that was was more pure and more objective. And this was at a moment when objective sciences were, were you know, sort of increasing in their influence epistemologically. And, and that notion of phenomenological reduction has since been discarded by people who do hermeneutics because it's it's not possible. Like we we don't have the ability to get outside of our own subjectivity. We we don't have the ability to set aside who we are and in a lot of ways who we are matters like the the fact that that I'm a transgender woman changes the way I read a text it affects what I see it affects what I focus on and that that is a that isn't a source of confounding information that's a source of value that that is a perspective that if I can articulate that perspective you learn more about the text and about my reading of it knowing how I have approached it and who I am coming into it. And you also learn more about me as the reader. And, and so they both become more illuminated. But how do you like um, find a good balance uh, when it comes to the significance of subjectivity? Because we, uh, I do totally understand that it's inevitable to exclude subjectivity entirely because it would mean that it would be some kind of computing machine that would just process... Right. Chat GPT, do a close yes, reading exactly. of Assassin's Creed. <laughs> exactly. And even that would probably not be objective because it's learned on texts that have yep. already been written by people who mm -hmm. were subjective. Um, but on the other hand, of course, when you do something that uh, qualifies as an academic analysis, it needs to go beyond what you would find, for example, in a video game review or in a blog post where someone mm -hmm. talks about what they like or dislike about the game. What, how do you find a balance between those two opposite poles? So there are some strategies that I use when I do readings. Uh, one is to, to develop, like, and actually spend a lot of time developing and, and focusing in on analytical lenses um, as, a, as a reading tool. And this is one of the things that sets these types of methods apart from more grounded theory approaches in that we actually 
like I, I will go to theory and I will build out a series of questions that are rooted in existing theoretical concerns within the field. And, and I will use that to focus my, my playing because typically when you're, you're reading a game, it's, it's too big to, to do an all purpose reading like games, unlike, unlike novels or film are the, the combination of indeterminacy and, unexpected system behaviors and uh, the influence of your own skill as a player on the experience and the, the sheer number of hours involved in it. It's you, you simply cannot do a holistic inclusive reading of most games. And so you need to find a way of sharpening your focus. And I find that theoretical lenses do the work of both orienting you towards a particular phenomenon within the text and also helping you to um, strike that balance between your own subjectivity as a player and your goals as a scholar to produce a contribution to knowledge. So an example might maybe be, if I understand this correctly, that let's say I uh, I play something, I play Final Fantasy VII, for example. <laughs> let's say I play Final right, Fantasy VII right. Remake or something, um, and I have this initial first impression, and then I form an analytical lens, maybe by engaging with the subject of um, environmentalism, um, and then I shape analytical lenses by forming specific questions. I want to basically inquire into the game through the lens of this particular question as to how is the... Um, dystopia uh, uh, of a, a planet being exploited portrayed in Final Fantasy VII. Would that be an analytical lens? Yeah, so what, so what, what I will typically do from a, like a pure pragmatic standpoint is I will make a list of questions. I typically have one or two analytical lenses I'm interested in, in when I'm reading a text um, because I've, I have ADHD and my brain is interested in all the things. <laughs> um, but uh, I will typically print out like hard copy of my question sheets and tape them up next to my monitor while I'm playing. And, and I will have note taking apparatus open. Like I'll have a tablet or a laptop open. And so while I play, I have in the corner of my mind in the periphery of my experience, these questions that are, that are just keeping me from, from completely losing sight of, of what I'm doing as a scholar. And if something happens that, I worry is going to be forgotten if I if I do something or experience something where my brain goes ooh ooh that th this question is in is addressed here I I need to note that I will note it down uh, I also have passive recording going so I typically set up Fraps uh, which is a screen capture application to do a screenshot every second while I play. Um, so that I can go back through the image archive and pull out data and also use that to cue my own recall. Um, and so I'll do that in the real-time aspect of play. And then when I'm done with a game or with a play session, I will sit down with my sheet of analytical lenses and questions, and I will go through and do a debrief where I'll answer each question to the best of my ability based on what I experienced. And then I'll go and play again. And, and typically what happens is that some questions end up not being interesting. Some of the mm. questions that I, that I found, some of the things that were happening in the theory either aren't present in the game and therefore aren't, aren't being satisfied and aren't, aren't really going to yield any knowledge. And other questions 
explode in this spider web of additional new questions that I hadn't anticipated. And so I create a new sheet of questions and I put those up and I do the next playing with the new sheet and I document the evolution of the analytical lens because what you end up with is a conversation that is happening between you and the game and the analytical lenses evolution becomes a trace of how your relationship to the theory develops and it becomes a way of, of demonstrating rigor and of making your process of reading uh, accessible uh, to the the person who's going to read your theory so they can be like okay well was she just picking and choosing these ideas no actually she was looking at all these ideas and then the the text was what showed her where to go next and it's it's a way of demonstrating rigor and validity to a, an academic community that can often be skeptical of subjective methods yeah so that you show that you're not just taking just that one particular aspect that conveniently fits that one particular sequence, but instead that you approached it from a more broader perspective and narrowed it down to these points. Yep, because it is it is common when receiving reviews of this work to have people question whether or not you created a self-fulfilling prophecy, whether you, you said, yeah. I'm interested in this and this game has this, and so I read this and I found this. And and and, and I think it's it's very easy to challenge close readings on those grounds if the person doing the reading hasn't been rigorous about documenting their process and, and articulating how they have approached the text, why they've approached the text, and, and how they have reached the conclusions they have reached. What I do as well is that I always record my first playthrough so that I can go back, look at the material again, also conveniently to basically make screenshots from the videos. So I do, that, I do it in a very similar process that you do. And what I find most convenient about it is that it kind of relieves me from the necessity of taking notes all the time. Because while playing, I, of course, I will have lots of thoughts running through my mind, but I... I withhold from noting all of them down because maybe once in a while, well, if it's something really important that I hadn't thought of before, but usually I will not constantly pause to take a note because it will interrupt my engagement yep. with the video game. It's And that's one of those things that, depending on the game you're playing and how much data you're generating, sometimes I think, like, so I know groups that do video recording, like Bernard Perrone's group and it at UCAM in Montreal, they they have actually written some papers about their process of recording videos of their playthroughs and going back and analyzing them. Um, I found that for my own process, I, I turn on subtitles, first of all, for everything, so that when I'm getting screenshots, I'm getting any dialogue that's being spoken that way. Um, and, and I do a, a fairly dense screenshot process. And actually, at the end of any play session, part of what I do is I organize and sort out my screenshots, which helps me cue my own recall. Uh, and I find that from a data storage standpoint, I don't have to have as large of a hard drive when doing yeah. that. And, and that it also, it's much easier for me to find a moment when I can scroll through a directory of, of large thumbnails than it is to try to scrub through a video. Um, that, that video can be, like, it, it's higher fidelity, but it's much harder to work with when you're trying to access things. Uh, and it's nice to have all the screenshots ready so I can just pull out the screenshots and drop them right into the paper. Because the, the thing that, that Jim Bazoki, my, my, my graduate advisor, hammered into me from the moment I started graduate school was to always 
always ground it in the text that the, the close reading is at its core an empirical method as weird as that sounds and i'm not an empiricist in terms of my epistemology but it is ultimately if you are going to make an argument you need to be able to support that argument with evidence and your evidence base is the game it is the text you need to be able to point to it and say i experienced this and i interpret it this way but here is the thing that I experienced so that other people can can you know assess whether or not they're going to buy the argument you're making. Yeah, it's a different kind of empirical data. Empirical data is not just um, huge quantitative numbers, but it can also be a qualitative observation of something like a video game text, right? Yep. Well, I find the method very appealing with the screenshots. Though I, I was just thinking I should really implement this. I find it actually convenient also because, yeah, my hard drive is easily like, you know, <laughs> clogging yep. up. But the uh, thing is, yeah. most video game consoles don't allow me to do that, I think. Like with Fraps, it's possible. But with a video game console, I would always have to click the button to make a screenshot, right? That is true. And this is something where um, this is something that my students and I have encountered because I, I developed all of these techniques playing on a PC. And so I, 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 was, I have never been a console gamer. And so I had students who wanted to close read console games in my classes. Um, I've had students who've wanted to play uh, mobile games uh, in my classes. And, and I will, I'll be like, here, use Fraps to do screenshots. And they're like, Tess, I can't do that. I'm on an Xbox. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and what I found is that, that you need to invest in some hardware to do this, that, that we have a, a pretty high quality video capture card that we run to uh, a PC so that when I'm playing anything on a console, it's outputting its data to a computer that is running Fraps, that is then doing a screenshot capture. Uh, there are adapter cables that will let you plug mobile phones into these um, that will let you do screen capture from the phone. And, and that has been the solution that I have found because, mm. and again, we're talking like, like nuts and bolts here. Yeah. Uh, that is a way to expand this method to include consoles and, and mobile devices, which is where most people are playing their games right now. Yeah, at least with the PS5, there's like an integrated recording feature. So what I would do is I would record my only the, the first playthrough usually. And then I would, once I'm done, the internal hard drive of the PS5 was a, would be about to explode. I yep. would quickly take everything, shovel everything over onto an external hard drive, basically. And, and that's, I think, uh, absolutely the way to go. I, it is, I'm embarrassed to admit that I've been out of the playing game space for so long. I don't even have a PS5 in my lab. Um, I haven't caught up with, with it. We just got a Switch, so that's where I'm at. Ah, the Switch is beautiful, though. It doesn't have oh, a recording feature, lovely. but it's a beautiful oh, it's an console. Elegant, elegant console. <laughs> well, I was also wondering, um, one issue of subjectivity is, of course, that we want to... Yeah, we want to maintain that balance. We want to bring in an analytical lens to prevent our readings from being too subjective. But one point that at least I have have not encountered, but that I find very important to stress is that we, when we analyze uh, video games and when we um, yeah, engage in a close reading, I take comfort in the fact that we're not alone. <laughs> like that we actually, I mean, the reason why we, we publish these things so that other people can read it and then get into conversation with that analysis and maybe agree or 
disagree. So I find some comfort in the fact that, yes, I am, of course, to some degree uh, trapped within the confines of my own subjectivity. But on the other hand, there are many other subjectivities out there that might present an alternative reading to the one that I have presented. Absolutely. I think the the other point that that I would love to emphasize here is that because this is a, a method that ultimately rests upon the perspective of the person doing the reading, one of the best ways to improve yourself as a scholar is to sharpen your perspective, is to to read more, is to play more, is to to develop your expertise, because most claims to authority with a hermeneutic methods are rhetorical, right? They, they rest upon your capacity to, to make your case, to make an argument for, for why your interpretation of the game sh- is useful to people, is going to be of value to the next person who comes along. And you're, you're never going, like, you, you don't make claims about capital T truth when you're doing a close reading. Like, I'm never going to say, like, this is what the game means. I'm going to say this is what the game meant to me in this moment. And hopefully, I have spent enough time reading and playing and thinking that that I bring an expertise to it. So when I say this is what the game meant to me, somebody can read that and be like, oh, yeah, she's she's got good points. She's She's saying things that are helping me in my understanding of the game that are changing how I would play the game. And, and that's ultimately, I think, the, the kinds of contributions to knowledge that we can make with this technique is this dialectical contribution where we're each a piece of a conversation around the game. And ideally, we want that to be a good conversation with people. Yeah, we can also maybe practice things like deliberately developing alternative interpretations of texts. Because mm-hmm. I, I 100% agree that I would also never claim this is the meaning of this text and now we're basically case closed. It's done. That would be kind of an antithesis to uh, hermeneutics. But um, I I would try and if I develop an analysis, I would look at it again afterwards and I would think, can this also be read in a completely different way, potentially? Mm -hmm. And then I would include that alternative reading into my argument as well. Well, and what that that's actually a perfect opportunity to talk about one of the other techniques that that Jim and I developed um, that that I really found useful when I was approaching texts as a student, which was to produce this kind of imagined phenomenology for playing a text. This like, like Jim talked about it in terms of the imagined naive reader, um, which is how he he approached work in his master's thesis. Uh, when I did my work on Oblivion, I I played through opening sequences as if I were the kind of player who doesn't care about story. And then I played again as if I were the kind of player that was only focused on this particular aspect of play. And and those as if playings, those subjunctive playings are a powerful tool for both defamiliarizing your experience of a text, making a text fresh and new and, and getting a new perspective on it. And also for expanding the scope of the kinds of claims you can make, because the thing that really sets close playing aside, apart from watching a film or or reading a novel or, or another static media, is that you are making choices that are changing how the text is presenting itself to you. And that's a thing that gives you a lot of power over what you read. Like if 
if I am, if you and I both sit down to play the same game and you have hundreds of hours of expertise in that game and I'm playing it for the first time, you will be experiencing materially a very different media artifact than what I am experiencing because your expertise is going to inform the kinds of things you see, the amount of time you spend in any given section of a text. Um, both of these perspectives bring value to it. An expert perspective allows you to see things that the text can offer that, that an amateur or a novice wouldn't be able to access. A novice perspective brings oftentimes happy accidents and, and other outcomes that, that an expert would never encounter because they know better. Um, and, and, and both provide a new angle into facets of a text or a game that, 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 are equally interesting depending on the kind of work you're doing. Yeah, and especially in that Oblivion analysis, I, of course, uh, I read that analysis and I found it super interesting that by taking on these different, um, let's just say subjectivities for now or um, yeah. phenomenological perspectives, um, by playing this sequence kind of as if, diff as if you were different people playing it and experimenting with it, you manage to understand some more profound things about the workings of that sequence. For example, if I recall correctly, just that um, in this Oblivion introduction, it would measure the things you do and then it would suggest a class to you and you realize that it measures some things while it doesn't measure other things. And that, of course, is an observation that would only reveal, that you can only reveal by playing several times with different approaches. Yep. And in that particular one, what I found really interesting about it was that there was this mismatch between what the game was measuring and what the player could intend through their actions. Uh, and, and it specifically rested upon the fact that one of the skills that you would increment through play was athletics. And athletics happened whenever your character was running. It was essentially an ambient, passive thing occurring in the background. And I think I can say safely that there are very few players that are willing to walk slowly through through the opening dungeon of a game when, when a running option is available to them with no consequences. And, and so this thing that wasn't really a meaningful expression of intent from the player. It was simply a pragmatic aspect of navigating the environment was, was weighted as heavily as all the other things that players were doing. And in doing so, it confounded their, their model's ability to make sense of what a player is doing. And it resulted in recommendations that were, were quite, quite off base. It took, it took playing in extremely artificial ways to be recommended certain classes that, should have been available through through that model without having to play in an artificial way. I'm actually the kind of player that slowly walks through an intro dungeon. I actually have this problem that I often I often walk slowly through a video game and then I come yeah, I then complain that the video game's too huge. It's like the the world is too huge and then Right, it's like, because you're walking. Because I'm walking. Because why would I run? You know, there's no diegetic reason for why my character would run. So I just walk. I love walk. that. <laughs> I love that so much. I love finding... So this is something I'm really interested in because I see it actually as a kind of queering of the game design in some ways. I had a, a graduate student who's who's now, uh, you know, has his PhD and uh, is doing wonderful work out in the world. But he 
invariably in a game that had a moral choice system would pick the neutral option every time. And I, I was so, I, I, I was like, are you a sociopath? What's wrong? <laughs> like, like who does that? Because I like, I'd never met anybody who didn't have a strong preference to go with either the, the, like in mass effect, the Paragon versus the renegade option or, you know, the light side of the forest versus the dark side of the forest. Like the, it's, it is, there's, there's actual analytics on this where if you look at the development of the Mass Effect games, the third Mass Effect game, they remove the vast majority of the neutral dialogue choices because they were get, able to get telemetry that showed that players didn't pick them, that nobody wanted them. And so why would you invest development cycles into a thing that only a tiny fraction of your player population was going to be interested in experiencing? Yeah, this it's like you kind of negate the significance of the choice if you just say, either way is good for me. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm just okay. And then like, yeah, okay, Commander Shepard is so much less interesting than Renegade Shepard or yeah. Paragon Shepard. Like there's, it's, it's like the, the gray jello of Shepard. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the last question. Mm-hmm. There are many people out there who start out with game studies and who have their first experiences with video game analysis before them. Do you have any tips for such fresh new students that try to just fumble around with the method a little bit and develop their own first analyses? So I, I see this in my classes, and I've seen this when I've, when I've taught this method, which is that I will, I will ask a student to, you know, write, to, to pick a game and, and do a close reading uh, for the end of the quarter, and and they will write what amounts to a game review rather than a game analysis, um, and it's pretty common. and And part of it is recognizing that, especially at the beginning, you may not have a thing to argue, but that that ultimately these kinds of analysis are are rhetorical. You're you're making a case for something. You're you 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 have a point you want to make, ideally, and so. When, when thinking about what you want to close read, I think it's really important to look at what matters to you as a person, what matters to you as a scholar, what is the, the work that speaks to you, what are the questions that you have that haven't been answered, and, and to, to, in some ways, spend as much time developing yourself as a lens as actually doing the analytical work. Because the perspective and the point of view of the reader plays such a huge role in these analyses that you can't neglect it. You can't just do it without doing that work on yourself, which means when you approach a text, like you, you need to have questions. You need to have curiosity. You need to have something that you really don't know about it that you would like to have answered by it. And you want to genuinely want those answers and they need to matter. And ideally, they need to be in conversation with things that other people think matter as well, because otherwise we're just writing game reviews. That was Teresa Tannenbaum, co-author of the article Well Read, Applying Close Reading Techniques to Gameplay Experiences. Tess has actually written another article that is more recent and where she discusses some of the subjects as well that we spoke about in the interview. That article is called hermeneutic inquiry for digital games research we will link to both of these articles in the show notes as well as to her website that represents some of her current work that is transformativeplay.ics.uci.edu 
edu. We're going to put the links in the show notes, so feel free to check them out if you are curious. Of course, we're always intrigued by the problems that you might encounter while producing close readings and the pragmatic solutions that you have found for yourself. If you wish to share those insights, then feel free to do so. You can go to studyingpixels.com slash contact to reach out, or you can join our Discord server. Just go to our website and hit, I think it's the follow button. I actually forgot the name of the button. There's a button there. It's a button on the website. And you can click on Discord then, and it will throw you right into our server. We'd be very happy to receive you there. Thank you so very much for listening, and we will be back next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.